Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would draw our attention to an event, Lord, long ago in time, but as ever-present a reality for the redeemed today as the moment of the fullness of time, of Calvary itself. Lord, I pray today in the celebration of the table that you have prepared in communion later, and in our holding ourselves, Lord, accountable to your word and to its proclamation and asking for your spirit to give us understanding. I pray through these means that you would awaken our souls to the value of the cross in new and greater dimension today. Lord, I pray that we would realize with more of our heart and mind and affections applied the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have washed away our sins as far as the east is from the west by the cleansing power of that sacrifice of Calvary. I pray that the rest of our lives would be given evermore each day to worshiping and glorifying and living in light of that fact. I pray that your church would witness and testify to or the power of your cleansing blood as we leave this place later that we might evidence and manifest the joy of the Lord connected to our salvation, the love of Christ that overflows from one who thinks for any length of time the reality of our salvation and the purchased heaven eternal we have in Christ, covenant made. I thank you, Lord, for these truths, these glories, these blessings, this privilege and the duty of sharing you with others. Help us, Lord to live out the reality of the gospel as a consequence of this service today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious opportunity to celebrate together in the communion of the saints and more so even the communion that Christ's blood has provided for us with the Father together in worship today. I'd invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 today. Hebrews chapter 3 this morning is our communion service once a month. And so we pick up our series in Hebrews where we've examined to some degree already the supremacy and the sufficiency, the glory of Christ in comparison to amazing things and dispensations of God's glory through the ages, through His servant Moses, through the celestial beings that are created as servants, ministers, flames of fire for God's name's sake. Yet there is one who is uncreated, one with the Father and yet distinct in His role, the second person of the Trinity, who in the incarnation became man and dwelt with us, God incarnate, God with us. And through the work of that one man and God, Jesus Christ, so our salvation is secure. And thus, as we explore the truth of Christ revealed in His work on Calvary and in His glorious revelation in the Incarnation in the book of Hebrews, our hearts are staggered with the implications of the praiseworthiness of our Messiah. So this morning it is my prayer and aim that as we discover perhaps some more truths behind a few verses in Hebrews chapter 3, that our hearts would come freshly alive with worship at what He has revealed to us in Christ. 
So I'd ask you to stand with me, if you would, at this time, and let us read together Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. So our author records, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His son, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting, and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Homeowner Test. How do you know who is the homeowner of your life? You, as a picture here, were given a metaphor of house or home that is the true church. Individually, those who have been ransomed, redeemed, regenerate, born again in Christ. And then collectively, those who share that experience together in the assembly and in fellowship, the body of Christ. In verse 8, we read, I'm sorry, 6, we read of chapter 3, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This morning, the theme of this message, and I hope the theme of this text is accurately represented in this title, Homeowner Test. Testing to see who owns us as a home or a house. Are we Christ's house indeed? Is the church today the professing, confessing church? Do they show in their deed and certificate and their contract with, uh, on their house, as it were, to borrow that metaphor and take it a step further that Christ Himself is the owner Well, today as we explore some truths from Hebrews chapter 3, perhaps we will be given more tools to search our own soul and also to pray for the church to see if indeed those who claim the name of Christ show Him on the title deed of their heart and indeed on the title deed of their church. So let us endeavor this morning to apply the homeowner test to see who owns this house as it were as we examine ourselves and as we examine ourselves together. Hebrews 3.6 assures confessing believers that we are the house of Jesus Christ provided we meet the conditions of, quote, holding fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The undeniable thematic aim of Hebrews resurfaces here in chapter 3. We've explored this at the beginning of chapter 2. We'll explore it again, again in chapter 6 and chapter 10 as there is clear, exhortational, even words of rebuke, warning language 
That resurfaces again and again. It's repeated in the text of Hebrews. Thus, it is an undeniable thematic aim of Hebrews that the founder of our salvation, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, be first and foremost in our confession, in our heart, in our experience, in our fellowship together. Chapter 3 is imploring the church of Jesus Christ, according to the author, as the author issues these warnings, it's imploring the church of Jesus Christ to audit herself, if you will, or test herself by the scriptural standards of fidelity to the founder of our salvation, Jesus. And as chapter 3 calls him in verse 1, among many other names, titles, and ideas connected to Christ in Hebrews, the apostle and priest, high priest of our confession. Many in the audience of this letter, when it was written, would have never dared to think of denying their allegiance to Moses. Moses was a historical and covenantal figure in ethnic Israel, and we can assume inductively from this letter that the audience had a familiarity with the Hebraic culture, and indeed a high value and veneration of figureheads of covenant history like Moses. And thus it is it is apparent from the text then it would be highly unlikely that any receiving this letter would deny Moses, would separate themselves from associating with him, or would disavow his influence or the importance of him in their own history and their understanding. But while Moses was a fixture, in presumably in the context of those hearing the church of importance, the real tragedy was that they nevertheless were showing a waning allegiance to Christ. Which raises the question, one that we can apply to our hearts, our lives, our experience, our church today. Who or what is the stable object of our affections? Does Christ come and go, but something else uh, represents security or assurance or hope for us? Or do other things come and go? The waxing and waning of human relationships and love, but we find after glorious... The glorious truth, after analyzing and searching our souls, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves, test yourselves, see if you're in the faith. Can we honestly say, other things come and go, affections wax and wane, but there is Christ, the stable fixture of my heart, the friend that sticketh closer than a brother, the one in whom I place my identity, my security, my loyalty, and my hope. Who is the stable object of our affections? Are we want to, like the church of Hebrews, exalt someone on the throne of the love of our soul to more prominence than Christ? They might have been guilty of that with the person of Moses. We could be guilty of that with our spouse, with our children, with a best friend with an idea, with a hobby, with a person, with a passion. But these questions will reveal who indeed that is, who is the stable object of our affections. For instance, a question like that will indeed reveal who is our homeowner, who is the one that owns our soul, that has the contract for deed to our heart, to the things that we love, so to speak. Well, my favorite commentary in Hebrews so far, not that I've explored a lot, but it seems I don't need to look too much farther than Philip Edgecombe Hughes as he assimilates so much great historical thought as he goes through this great book. And so I've been studying him as I 
prepare these messages for you. He summarizes this theme that I'm endeavoring to explain to declare from Hebrews by saying, quote, A man whose profession of faith is contradicted by the quality of his life should examine himself to see whether he is a Christian at all. He cites along with Hebrews, 2 Corinthians 13.5 as his authority. I alluded to it before just a minute ago. He goes on to say, Security in Christ does not absolve one, absolve one from personal responsibility. Quite the contrary. For the regenerate man is under total obligation to God. Seriousness in believing should manifest itself in seriousness concerning doctrine and conduct. Reading again the second part, quite the contrary, that is, Christ, we have a responsibility after coming to Christ. We don't just have a token allegiance that has no fruit or evidence, but indeed it remains a fact that the regenerate man, the one who is born again, whose life is wholly dedicated, whose heart has been resurrected from the deadness of sin, it remains a fact the regenerate man is under total obligation to God. Christ is Savior and Lord. Christ is Savior and Lord. And never the two can separate. Can we separate? The regenerate man is under total obligation to God. Thus seriousness and believing should be manifest in a deeper desire, concern, and deeper desire, deeper devotion. That would include both doctrine and conduct. So let us take a homeowner test, if you will, this morning to examine ourselves. And let's consider under this heading, values clarification, three points in particular today. Let's consider the perspective that the author of Hebrews offers us. Let's consider, secondly, a proclamation that he cites from Psalm 95 and verses 7 through 11. And thirdly, let's consider perseverance, which is a call throughout this epistle and is reiterated here in verse 12 through 14. Perspective, proclamation, and perseverance. Again, the heading, values clarification for the unapostate. I've kind of invented a word there. The concern here is that this church is apostate, that it is collectively or institutionally leaving the faith. There are stiff and stark warnings within the text that they have wandered from their first love, much like the Ephesian church receives that warning and indictment in the opening of the book of Revelation. Thus, we have uh, parallels in this text, parallels in Hebrews to deliver a stiff word of rebuke and warning to a church that is in danger of tumbling off the precipice of unbelief, leaving behind their association, their affiliation with Christ. So thus, uh, perhaps the reason they were now gathering wasn't because Christ had ransomed their soul, but because they appreciated the friendship they had one with another. Perhaps the identity they found with the person sitting sitting next to them in the assembly is they both venerated Moses. They both took pride in maybe their ethnic Judaism, though they were displaced perhaps as uh, the um, ethnic Jews who were not in their homeland, but found some cultural identity with those who had like history and like profession. Perhaps they had left Christ in a secondary category and replaced Him for things like this. Thus, they needed to be reminded, what are the true values that define, that govern, and guard the true church of Jesus Christ? 
These values needed to be clarified. The unapostate always value Christ as superior, as sufficient, as supreme. They value Him over angels, over Moses, over the high priestly office, over the prophets who've gone before, over their own ideas, over the ministers that serve in a provisional way in the meantime here on earth, over their favorite books written by mere men, over the ideas that they've uh, hammered out in their thinking, in their mind, over philosophies and winds of doctrine that blow across the landscape of Christian thought. There are values that supersede all of these things that the true church holds close to their heart, and it is the sufficiency again and the supremacy of Christ. Let us consider first the perspective that our author gives. Read with me again Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Actually, it's some new territory backing up a bit from our primary text this morning. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses, verse 5, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, verse 6, is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This compare and contrast to show how Christ supersedes the glory, the limited veiled glory of Moses, is an example of perspective that was brought to bear so that the church could reassess their values at this time, and it's helpful for us as well. Consider first the perspective of greater glory. Who is the greatest and most glorious in all covenant history? Well, it is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to establish this from the outset in the theme of his book. Consider chapter 1, verse 5. He asks this rhetorical question and answers it with seven quotations from Old Covenant authoritative Scripture. For to which of the angels... Here the subject and for perspective is angels. We're going to compare the glory of Christ to angelic beings, the highest possible, perhaps imaginable, glorious, celestial being, yet a created one. But Christ is infinitely more glorious than these. To which of the angels, for instance, did God ever say, we read in verse 5, and then a quote from the Old Testament, You are my son, today I have begotten you, taken from Psalm 2, chapter 7. The answer is none of them. And no one, no one else, no created being is worthy of this designation. The Son, the eternally begotten of the Father. The one who is the Son of Man. The one who will accomplish redemption and ascend to the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who will ascend before the Ancient of Days with the rewards of His suffering and prove glorious and manifestly King over all creation. The one who is the exact imprint of the nature of the Almighty God who upholds the universe by the word of His power, according to verse 3. 
Not content to cite just one quote, our author continues in verse 5, or again, and here's a quote, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The family relationship, the association and covenant between the father and son, which made possible the propitiation of our very souls, is something that the incarnate Son of God, the unique one, Jesus Christ, the superior, the glorious, the sufficient one, alone could hold, could claim. And again, verse 6, when he brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And here we find the glorious celestial beings that populate the heavenlies, the ones that sang blessed is the blessings to Christ at the very moment of His birth when the skies were full of their glory and they testified to Him. The angels, we find, were created by God for the purpose of giving glory to the One who would come, who would hold the singular role of Savior, of Lord, as the sacrifice and the high priest, and the apostle, the creator, the sustainer, the savior of all who are in him. Of the angels, he says in verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But in contrast, verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, and here, this is association of Christ with Yahweh, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. The highest name and identity reserved for God in Scripture is applied to Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. We continue, you, Lord, laid the foundation. Psalm 102 is quoted again with reference to Christ. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same in your years. Will have no end. The material realm is a tool in his hand it's a byproduct of the creativity that extended from his hands and his fingers at the moment time began and the material universe came to being by the word of his power thus angels all of creation the expanse of the heavens the furthest reaches of the galaxy the known uh, world and as far as the hubble space telescope can look and further is all evidence to the glory the dominion of Christ and everything I just mentioned is only sufficient to contain part of his footstool and he as king and sovereign rules over all the universe the angels his redeemed the wicked this world history the future Verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Everything from the angelic, uh, from the angelic realm to the furthest reaches of the created material universe is a fixture that glorifies Christ and exists to radiate back to Him the honor He deserves. And so are we. The greater glory of Christ is evident in the record of Hebrews by comparing Him by superlative measure as surpassing all other things, angels, the created realm. And we read further 
that he is compared and contrasted to Moses, as we've read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We also read in the, later in the book, in Hebrews 5, and continuing on for several chapters, for every high priest chosen from among men, 5.1, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices. Uh, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So here's the description of the old covenant role in the office of priesthood. But now it's applied to Christ, again, verse 5, to show how much more glory he has in this office. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then later it's expounded what this means, Melchizedek, was a priest of the Most High God, a king of Salem, a king of peace. And chapter 7 goes on to attach to Christ everything that was symbolically represented, but now manifoldly evident in Him. Verse 24 of chapter 7, He, Christ, upholds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them on and on this book goes unfolding in glorious detail in multifaceted revelation the greater glory of jesus christ and this is the perspective that we need if jesus ever gets knocked down a few notches in our own mind consider second corinthians 3 7 through 4 1 we won't go there this morning But Paul records, much like the author of Hebrews does, that there was a veil over a limited display of glory in the office of Moses. And we can draw connections also to the office of the priesthood through Aaron of old and his descendants. But in Christ, that veil is lifted. And those who are in Him are not only privy to a superior glory that they can behold in part now, but one day will appreciate in heaven in unimaginable depth and beauty, but they themselves are being transformed into that same image even by the Spirit of God, indwelt by that glorious presence of the Spirit, changed from the inside out, reconstituting our being to reflect Him and to be worthy of His presence, paid for by the purchasing power of Christ's blood. This is the greater glory that provides for us a perspective so that we can clarify the values of what it means to be in Christ, what we love as a child of His, and what binds us together in communion as His own. Secondly, consider greater revelation. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion. Here, the author identifies the Holy Spirit as speaking through His inscripturated word in days of old. He's quoting Psalm 95. We can dovetail this with the opening phrases of this very book in chapter 1, verse 1. 
When our author said long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. One way God has spoken, he cites here in chapter 3, verse 7, by quoting Psalm 95. God has spoken to us by the Psalms, by the word of God that was pre-recorded before the author set about to write this book. So this is one of the ways he has spoken. But notice there's even greater revelation that we can appreciate now, verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So not only is there a greater glory revealed in Jesus Christ, greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than the office of the high priesthood of old, but there is a greater revelation through the Word of Christ, that has now dawned upon us as we open up the pages of the New Testament. This idea is expounded in chapter 2. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, this warning again in light of the perspective of greater revelation, but therefore our author says we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. You see the multiplicity of revelation. It's truth upon truth. Line upon line, glory upon glory, precept upon precept. The word was delivered in the Old Covenant as by angels, but now it was underscored with the exclamation point, the highlight in the clarity in the application of Christ's own declared word when he preached the message of the kingdom, of the apostolic record when a Peter or a Paul would take the word of Christ, interpret and apply it and record it for our reading Also recorded in books like this, letters, epistles of correction, taking the word of God and showing in real time how it ought to affect our life, our doctrine, our conduct and our affections. Not only that, but also signs, wonders, miracles and gifts of the spirit that were unfolding and exploding at the time of the delivery of the New Testament and at the revelation of Christ. And as the gospel spilled over the walls of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and flooded the uttermost parts of the earth. There is therefore, in our heart, there ought to be therefore in our heart, a great value of the gospel, that the perspective of the greater glory of Christ, and the greater revelation that's available to us, ought to induce within our soul as we think about it. Think about it, saints. The treasure that we hold in our hands today, as we're paging through this holy word of God, Do not take it lightly. Do not forget the sovereign power of God that is evident in its preservation for us. But more than that, the sovereign power of God evident intrinsically within its ideas, its words, its pages, its phrases that cut to the heart like a sword of correction provide for us conviction, joy, promises, and an assurance of our salvation as it's described for us in beautiful, sometimes poetic, propositional, explanatory, argumentative, glorious language 
using all sorts of literary means to emphasize to us the greatness and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, under perspective, again, this is a values clarification test for us to see how we measure up in our heart to the standard that we ought to value as the church of Jesus Christ. In light of what I've just given you, greater glory of Christ revealed, greater revelation of that glory in His Word, we have proportionally a greater culpability if we fall short and also a greater responsibility. Stewardship, the stewardship stakes are high. They are raised in light of the greater knowledge of truth. You know from Scripture the principle, to much, to whom much is given, much is required. That is the theme of a parable Christ gives in Luke 12, 48. But note that a, a principle applied to us in light of what the book of Hebrews declares. Note the tone of the admonishment throughout the book of Hebrews. We read one of these warnings in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, Therefore, we must play, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect a great salvation? If you broke God's law in the Old Covenant, something as what we would think in our modern eyes, something as simple or as insignificant as gathering sticks on the Sabbath, that in itself was a capital offense. The Word of God was sufficient authority to render you deserving of death if you would break so much as one of its laws, like the one I just gave you. That illustrates to us the seriousness of the revelation and the responsibility of those who are entrusted to receive it to conform to its precepts and standards. But the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. That is, if in the Old Covenant... The children of Israel were to take so seriously the law because they were well aware that if they transgressed it here or there as it prescribes, it was a capital offense. How much more ought we to value and to take seriously the word of God, which has been delivered to us by more than just the means of old, but the compounding evidence that I've already cited. We read in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, uh, fast-forwarding a little bit in our text to gather again or to uh, collect again evidence for this theme, this repeated theme of warning in the text. It says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up for contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end to be burned. He says, with this thankful note of hope and assurance for us, if we are truly in Christ, verse 9, For though I speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, I feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Nevertheless, there is strong warning language that ought to at least communicate to us how serious it is when we've been entrusted with such a great revelation, what a serious infraction it is, and how dangerous it is to take it lightly. 
There's three more verses that emphasize this again for us in Hebrews chapter 10 that I'll read briefly. Verses 29 through 31 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Consider these points of perspective in the book of Hebrews. Consider the greater glory of Christ, the greater revelation that we are the beneficiaries of. And finally, consider the greater responsibility all this holds for us. It is a travesty these days that in light of the theme of the book of Hebrews, what I've just delivered to you, that most ministries, the popular ones, the churches that are busting at the seams with attendance, the sermons that fall on the ears like a, a tickling feather and cause us to laugh and to feel good about ourselves is a travesty these days, oftentimes the way the Word of God is delivered. We keep throwing invitations to come to Christ and grace, grace, grace like so much mud against the wall, hoping it will stick. But we often avoid the indictment of the Word of God that calls us out for the wicked and depraved sinners that we truly are. And I'm telling you, we are deep in sin if we take lightly the Word and Gospel of Jesus Christ. We need the corrective sword, not the caressing stroke of the Word of God. If we are falling into a state of lethargy, complacency, self-aggrandizement, and self-comfort, and self-love, and idolatry, and entertainment, and everything else that we are so prone to in our sensate, self-indulging culture, We need the Word to come through and to cut like Hebrews, the author of Hebrews does when he delivers his message to this church that was losing its values. And it needed to have the clarification that Christ is the reason you ought to be excited, the reason you should go to church, the reason you should listen, the reason you should think, you should work, you should consider, you should plow forward in your calling and do all things for His glory, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of Christ and Christ alone. Oftentimes, in our lethargy, and our cavalier attitude, we fall prey to the presumptuous, Sin of taking lightly the Word of God. But Hebrews calls for repentance if we fall into that category. O Lord, correct, convict, sharpen, change, and weed and prune as necessary your church so that Christ might be clearly spoken where hearts who are stuck in the miry clay of their selfishness need a word of rebuke and correction. Secondly, this morning, values clarification for the unapostate. The unapostate consider the perspectives that we've given. They also consider the proclamation that the Word of God has given us. And one example of the proclamation is cited from the Old Testament, and it's here uh, restated in the New and applied to Christ again and to our situation as His church. And we read in Hebrews 3, 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and now remember our author is preaching as he writes, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. For forty years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says in light of these truths to take care, brothers, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Turn with me briefly to Psalm 95. While you're turning there, under proclamation, let's consider just briefly three things this morning. First of all, in your notes, it's labeled didactic didactic biography. Didactic means teaching. A story recorded, a story of someone's life recorded for the purpose of instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says that these things that were written down, like the history of the children of Israel, were written down for our benefit to teach us how to live faithfully before the Lord and to communicate to us the consequences of taking lightly that which we should hold in high esteem. It is, uh, the Bible does not share the stories of the saints who have gone before in sections of Scripture like Hebrews chapter 11 or the sections of Scripture, the Exodus narrative and on through covenant history of Israel. The Bible does not record those biographies of say Samson and David and Jacob, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac. does not record them so that we can have neat little stories with vignettes, uh, moralisms, and uh, just ways to relate to our experience and validate ourselves. The Bible does not record these stories to share life coaching tips for self-betterment, how to, for instance, slay the giants in our lives by, you know, the giants like stress and unmet expectations and failed relationships with the five smooth stones of self-esteem and whatever else. The Bible does not record the stories of all to entertain our adventurous fantasies as some sort of fiction might, or even to canonize, God forbid, or apotheosize. That means to assign like divine qualities to men as saints and quasi-divines. The Bible does none of this. The Bible records the stories of old for, pur- for the purpose of instruction. The biblical aim of narrative is to contextualize repentance. The biblical aim of biography and of narrative is in part to contextualize repentance, to show what submitting to Jesus Christ, the Word of God, looks like. Consider Psalm 95 as an example of this. The, verse, the psalm opens, before we get to the citation of Hebrews, with these words in verse 1. O come! Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His for He made it and His hands are formed the dry land. Verse 6, So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. 
And then in verse 7, thus continues the citation in Hebrews. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Manasseh in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof that they had not seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And you'll notice a certain pattern. There's a message here. It's a gospel message, but there's also a method of its delivery. And the pattern in Hebrews 95, in, I'm sorry, Psalm 95, is, the, is mirrored in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. And the pattern is this. The glory of God precedes the narrative of men. The issues that deal with God and extolling and making Him known and publishing His beauty, His glory, and His power is priority. The glory of God precedes the concerns of man. First we come to the Lord. And this ought to be the structure of all biblically true preaching. The goal to glorify Christ. It is not ultimately for the purpose of man's betterment that we bring the Word of God. But indeed, the correction that comes as a consequence of the reading of the Scripture and the proclamation of the same is to glorify Him. Let us be changed into His image, proclaimed through the preaching of the Word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Let us do all these things that His glory commands. But how do we do it? We do it by taking seriously our total obligation, in the words of Hughes, to God. By seriously believing Him and seriously manifesting that faithfulness and that fidelity by taking seriously doctrine and conduct. This is the message and the method of both Hebrews and Psalms 95. Psalm 95, you read in the book of Hebrews, as we've already briefly mentioned, that the book opens with a glorious testimony of the revelation of Christ. It is the prescribed pattern of proclamation, which is to glorify and extol God by first priority. First priority, to lift Him up. And secondly, to address the plight of man. This is the model of proclamation that we see all throughout the Scriptures. It is God first. It is Christ-centered. It is His glory that is the chief end of His decree and His every will and purpose. Praise the Lord that it is to our good and works out to our good to be included in that process secondarily. But I would caution you and I would caution us in our thinking and in our listening. Let the red flags go up. Wave them when you hear sermons that put man first and make God a servant to us. The message of the gospel should not begin, this is a pet peeve of mine, I could make too much of it, but perhaps it's an example of how we set the tone in a way that does not best serve the glory of Christ. How many sermons open with a joke, a humorous vignette, and a personal story, and then proceed to get in to the meat of the matter and open up the word. I would question that practice if the net result is to set us at ease. Why would we do such a thing? Is it to make us feel good, comfortable, uh, break the ice? Perhaps what we need is to 
have the preacher or the Word of God hit us upside the head, not console us with a nicety, not to comfort us with a humorous experience, not to entertain us with some kind of quasi-mini stand-up routine, but to hit us upside the head with the truth that He is Lord and we are His subjects. The Word of God rightly divided, especially in the culture that we find ourselves in today. More often than not, it is my contention that it needs to open boldly, emphatically, and gloriously declaring the glory of Christ. We should set the tone in our reading of the Bible that it is the Lord first and us second. Sermons ought to be preached for the pleasing of God, not the pleasing of men. We should preach for the audience of the sovereign and the somber glory and weight of the throne room of God listening in, not the expectations and the corrupt appetites of fallen men that populate our pews and often populate our homes. We need the Word of God to correct before it consoles. We need the Word of God to cut through like a knife and remove the cancer before it mends the wound of the surgeon. We need the Word of God to address our sin and our malady the way a a compassionate doctor would upon the prognosis that you are fatally, that you are in the fatal control of this particular disease. Imagine a doctor who came out of the examination room having reviewed x-rays that showed malignant cancerous tumors in some recess of your body, sitting you down, telling you a joke, and trying to make you feel very comfortable. And then saying, well, come back next week and maybe we'll go over the news. Too often this is the way that we approach the Word of God and that the Word of God is delivered. Sermons ought to be preached for the benefit of our souls healing, recognizing our sinful bent to turn away from the values that Scripture would record and proclaim. Christ and His glory, God and His sovereignty, His beauty, His majesty, and His affections and desires, and the pleasing things that uh, accompany His mind, His thoughts, and His plans for the world and for us. Finally, under proclamation, consider attention and devotion. In summary, consider this basic truth. Here conveyed in the proposition and the pattern as it's delivered to us in the Scriptures and as it's echoed for us in the book of Hebrews. What holds our attention commands our devotion. Why is it so important to see that the Scriptures are written to glorify God and to convict sinners? Why is it so important to see that it is Christ first, Christ magnified? Certainly, if He is superior to angels such that they are sufficient only to occupy His footstool, Certainly, if He is glorious enough such that the expanses of this universe serve only as testimony to His creative power, but do not compete with Him one iota in His glory. Certainly, if He has superseded the old covenant and is manifestly fulfilled in His office and person such that the Aaronic priesthood is obsolete and the mediator Moses is now in the shadow of the glorious Christ, then we ourselves ought to be found in the shadow of Christ and find refuge and solace in our identity, our security, our loyalty, and our hope invested in 
the glorious truth of the kingdom of God and nothing of our own self-aggrandizement and our own doing. What holds our attention commands our devotion. And the Word of God calls our attention to the work and the glory of Christ. And so as we set our minds and our hearts to receive the Word of God, as we read it through the week and as we hear it on a Sunday, then it will transform us and conform us and our th- in the things that we love and pers- pursue to be more and more devoted exclusively to Christ. Thirdly and most briefly this morning, the author of Hebrews closes with a plea for perseverance. We've covered perspective and proclamation and perseverance. Ways to apply the book of Hebrews to clarify the things that we value individually and we value as a church. The theme of Hebrews, as we've mentioned, as much as the theme is a warning for the church that is falling from Christ, it is also an accompanying theme that His true church will, always has, always will, and is persevering. In Hebrews, again, chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Here, the author of Hebrews is careful to emphasize that the church of Jesus Christ is called to persevere. He first expounds the necessity in just a few short words. The necessity of perseverance, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Persevere. Dig into the Scriptures. Be saturated with its content in your heart and in your mind, lest you be overtaken with encroaching evil and unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God. Thus, perseverance is a necessity. He also defines the essence of perseverance. And in this section, it's the converse of what he has just declared here. Just as non-persevering is giving in to evil and unbelief, so persevering is continuing in righteousness and faith. Later he says in chapter 4, He says in 2, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard they did not benefit from. Why? It did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Thus it is essential in our call to persevere that we evidence the faith of a believer. And if we find upon a gospel audit of our own soul that we are lacking in that regard, to cry out to the Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He says in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest as He has said. This is not the only time, these two locations are not the only time where the author expounds the essence of perseverance as faith and belief. But if we look to Hebrews chapter 11, we see a documentation of those 
who lived their lives out as perseverant saints because that seed of sovereign faith that God had planted in them sprouted and produced fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Thirdly, under perseverance, we see not just its necessity, its essence, but we also see a means of growing in our call to persevere. And what a gracious gift this is. He says in verse 13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I am weary in well-doing, you might say. I am tempted to give up. I am filled all of the sudden because the weight of my trial was skeptical doubt. I am ashamed to admit to you I am asking questions I would have thought blasphemous before. What can I do in a state of weakened soul and mind, broken down with my spiritual defenses, suffering from the onslaught of the wicked one that comes in many forms and in many ways to devour the seed of the word in your soul? Well, the answer is given here. One way to fight him is to exhort one another daily, verse 13, as long as it is called today that none may be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Thus our fellowship together where we encourage and correct and address each other, if we confess our sin one to another, ask for help, share your testimony of faith with me, how's your spiritual walk going, and we receive that encouragement, we are embracing a prescribed means of growth in perseverance. Chapter 10, the author is calling this church to be bound to one another, not just in the communion of Christ, but as a secondary aspect and evidence of that communion one with another because God has given us each other to strengthen each other to persevere. He says in chapter 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Finally, under perseverance, consider its fruit. The fruit of perseverance is the glorious reward of our salvation, ultimately. As God continues to will and to do of His good pleasure, and as His Spirit works in us through these means we've just described, because it's so important, and bringing the essentials to us by growth in faith and in belief in Him and His Word as preeminent and sufficient. As all of that works in the heart and the life and the experience and the interaction of us as believers, it produces glorious fruit. Chapter 3, 14. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And just that phrase, we share in Christ, is so loaded with content that I could take those three words, share in Christ, with these pages before me today and with as many years as you could stack out in front of me and give me the endurance of one who could preach indefinitely and I could never exhaust and nor could you if you followed me all of the implications of what it means to share in Christ. We share in Christ inasmuch as His death paid for our sins and without that substitutionary work there is no salvation. 
We share in Christ inasmuch as the rewards of His suffering are shared with us in glorious eternal life one day when we receive what He bought and paid for in our experience eternally. We share in Christ in the promise that we now and in greater degree in the future rule and reign with Him. Co-regency, ruling and reigning with Christ. We share in Christ as a family member. He is our brother. We are saints. We are among the fellowship and family of God. These are just a few of the fruits that perseverance produces for us. Again, all the work of Christ, even as it is also Him working through us. A little homework for you, if you uh, are inspired to study further. On your notes, you'll see several references in Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 7, 11, 17, 26. Chapter 3, verse 5. 12, 21, and later in the text, 21, 7, as Jesus Christ is delivering His revelation through servant John to His churches, time and again, the fruit of endurance, conquering, the, Christ, the work of Christ, evident in the faithfulness of His church, is delivered. And just a study on that itself is truly staggering. The tree of life is promised. Manna is promised. A crown is promised. It goes on and on. The fruit of the perseverant is a glorious thing to look forward to. Remember this morning, as we search our own hearts, consider the perspective of the greatness of Christ. Consider that these things are proclaimed to us in Scripture, and we ought to proclaim them ourselves and listen to them proclaimed by faithful preachers. Thirdly, consider the perseverance that ought to be the fruit of working in and through you as you follow Christ. And if you see it lacking in any regard, heed the admonition of Hebrews and exhort one another, confess your sin, come to morning prayer, bring your burden. Those who fellowship with us in morning prayer would love to have the privilege of bearing that burden with you. Finally, this morning, we have one more means we can avail ourselves of today. That is the communion table. The communion table of Jesus Christ provides for us a front and center values clarification opportunity. In these elements, symbolically, we are called to see and to savor and to experience Christ in His atoning work for us. So I would encourage you to let this time of communion hold your attention today. And as we mentioned before, as communion as the Word of God, as thoughts and meditations on what we have been talking about today occupy your mind, the things that begin to hold your attention, you will, I trust, see them begin to command increasing devotion. Devotion to whom? Well, we've already read it. Devotion to Christ, to the radiance of the glory of God, He who is the exact imprint of His, the Father God's nature. Devotion to the universe upholder, the King of kings, the apostle of our confession, our merciful and, high and faithful high priest who has made propitiation in his broken body and shed blood for your sins and mine. Let's transition in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, as we partake in communion this morning, 
I pray that the glories that we share in Christ would rush into our souls like a wave of revelation that would invigorate us to worship devotion, to commitment to service, to endurance, to perseverance, to the fruit of a follower of Christ who has fixed his attention on his Savior, his first love, and the glorious power of God revealed in Scripture and through